Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to What's the Lesson, the show where we get to bring you insightful conversations with some of the brightest minds in various fields. I'm one part of this dangerous duo. Jill is here with me as my trusty co-pilot, per the usual. And today we have a guest who is truly the queen of the middle school experience. Phyllis Fagel, a licensed clinical professional counselor, certified professional school counselor, and journalist, is the author of not one, but two outstanding books, Middle School Matters and Middle School Superpowers. Her expertise in this pivotal stage of education is second to none, making her the ultimate authority on all things related to middle school journey. Her career, which has spanned over two decades, has been the guiding light for countless students, parents, and educators. And in today's episode, we have the privilege of exploring the transition both into and out of middle school, the crucial role of a counselor during these formative years, and the invaluable advice she offers for both middle schoolers and their parents. We'll also dive into the critical topic of mental health and well-being, being able to recognize the signs, as well as chatting through strategies for parents on how to communicate effectively with their adolescents during these pivotal years. Whether you're a parent looking for insights into your middle schooler's world, an educator seeking to enhance your approach, or simply someone interested in fostering the well-being of our younger generation, this episode is a treasure trove of knowledge. So let's get into it. Welcome to What's the Lesson, the podcast that takes you on a deep dive into the world of character development. We're Jill and Mary, the dynamic duo behind Girls Mentorship. We foster self-confidence, self-esteem, and self-awareness for tween and teen girls, along with their invaluable network of supporters through events, resources, and mentorship. Picture us as your coaches walking alongside you through the world of social-emotional learning and think of this podcast as your own personal roadmap. We'll support you in discovering obstacles that might be holding you back and gain clarity on why this work is a game changer, not only for your growth, but for the next generation of leaders as well. Alongside our fantastic guests, we're here to share knowledge about how you can change old patterns of behavior and make sense of those WTF moments, shifting them into lessons that can drastically improve your life instead. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a superhero stay-at-home mom, or someone fueled by boundless curiosity, our mission is crystal clear, to supercharge your emotional intelligence and sprinkle the magic of SEL into every corner of your life. So as we were hopping on, I asked how to pronounce your last name and you said Fagel like Bagel. And I feel like that's so important because we all work with kids and it's it's such a great entry point for them to be able to pronounce your name. But as we all know, we have to have certain like things that we say to kids that make sense for them. And when you say certain things that rhyme or there's acronyms, we use a lot of acronyms in our business. It just clicks. So welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. As I was saying, you were an instant yes for us, and we just appreciate people like you so much. But we saw that you released a book. Everyone's been posting about it. And it's not your first, but we'll get into what your first one was after. You just released something called Middle School Superpowers. And that's because you're a middle school counselor. Will you chat about 
how long you've been a counselor for, particularly a middle school one. I know you're a licensed professional counselor outside of that as well. But will you talk about um, you just getting into counseling a little bit? Sure. It was actually a second career for me. I had started in journalism. And when I had my first two kids, all of a sudden I realized I wanted a more reasonable career. And for some reason, I had the mistaken notion that education would be easier. (laughs) Right. Where where you can hang out with your kids in the summer. I've had those thoughts as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And it didn't quite work out that way. But when I went into counseling, I actually started in elementary and then I went to high school. And after high school, I went back to middle, which I had never done before and thought I will surely know what I'm doing because I've done the kids that are younger and I've done the kids that are older. And at the same time, I had my first kid enter middle school. And so I walked in there a little bit cocky without the kind of humility I think I probably should have had at the time and very quickly realized I didn't know what I was doing and that this was a whole different species. Went looking for information to help me help parents, to help me help kids. And it really didn't exist. Uh, Back when I wrote Middle School Matters, there was nothing out there at all. So I wrote a book for myself and for everybody else who was working with this age group. That is so cool. What what year was that? What year did Middle School Matters come Middle out? Matters came out in 2019. I had started writing about the age in 2015. So I had done a column for Washington Post for a while that I eventually turned into the book. Isn't that amazing how your career has really led to your experiences or based off of your experience has led you to the next step in your career. Because when we were checking you out on your website, yes, you're a middle school counselor, but you also are a professional counselor as well as a journalist. So in my head, I was like, oh, she's just a writer. But sure enough, a previous life, you were a journalist and you're using those skills to not only help you better your profession and other people in your profession, but you're also helping parents because I feel like Mary and I, in the work that we do, we work with girls, tween and teen girls, and we we still laugh about this, that we thought we were only going to work with girls. And sure enough, we quickly realized parents want to be looped in to what the girls are <laughs> learning. So we also needed to learn how to not only communicate with the younger demographic, the girls, but we also had to learn how to communicate with the parents and providing resources outside of us was hard to find. So the fact that you wrote a book for yourself actually really supports us in the work that we do too. So thank you. Well, I'm glad. And it's definitely rewarding to take something that is in your head, put it down on paper and actually have people, I'm still to this day amazed when people are like, oh, I read your book. I'm like, wow, it's actually and people are reading it because it's such a solitary activity, but it is really, that's where the meaning comes in when you're able to help other people through that work. Well, it's like you've had two more children because you have uh, three, do you have three children? Is that correct? Children and two book babies and one and two book babies. (laughs) So five, five children, because really the work that goes into writing a book, you said you started the research in 2015, which is mind blowing to me that you couldn't find anything out there. So something didn't exist in the year 2015. We're not talking about the year 1942. We're talking 2015. 
It's so important for us to know how to handle middle school because what you said, you walked into middle school feeling really cocky. You'd done elementary, you'd done high school. Middle school is another breed. They're scary. I think that's one of the best words that we could possibly use at this point. We host annual summer camps in the ages 10 to 13, and we ask guest speakers to come in and we get a lot of hesitation, not because they don't want to give back or give their expertise, but they're like, this will be my hardest audience. Middle schoolers are scary. And we're like, yeah, we know. But (laughs) if you can connect with them, it's the best relationship you can ever have. They're real. They're raw. They're honest. So it's been about seven, eight years since you've been a middle school counselor now. It's been longer than that. It's probably been about 11 or 12 years. Okay. Okay. Amazing. So transitioning into middle school, since you've worked on both ends, what do you see as kind of the hardest things for kids transitioning into middle school being? You know, one of the things that I'm often trying to convince parents, sometimes with more success than others, is that the negative experiences that kids have in middle school are not inherently worse than negative experiences they have at other times in their life. It's that when they're going to middle school, number one, they're being catapulted out of an environment where they're known and they know everyone. They're doing this at a time when they're super insecure, their body is changing, they have no life experience or perspective, and it's incredibly discombobulating. So when something goes wrong, they have no proof that it does not predict that they will always be friendless or they will never Mm -hmm. be able to recover from a low grade. So it is the intensity of the emotions. It is the fact that they're experiencing these things for the first time that makes it so hard. Do you find that you're in conversations like this a lot supporting parents? Because we also get kind of the... 911, oh my gosh, something is off with my daughter. She used to be this. She used to be so confident and sure of herself, and now she's not. And we also have similar conversations around just what she's experiencing inside of her body and that she doesn't have the life experience that we have as adults. So do you find yourself having similar conversations with parents around how to support their kiddos in this big transition time in their lives? A few times a week. It's such yeah. anxiety producing time for parents. Number one, kids often stop talking around this age. So mm-hmm. you don't know what's going on in their head. Number two, they're changing so fast. Not only do they feel like a stranger to themselves, but they can seem like a stranger to you as their parent. And I say this as the parent of three former middle schoolers, two boys and a girl. And I really have experienced that firsthand. And then on top of all of that, you bring all of your own stuff to the table. Mm. And if you didn't have the greatest experience and not many people look back at middle school as like the highlight of their The best years of my life. (laughs) The best three years of my life. So you bring all of that to the table and it's hard not to set that aside and remember that it's a different human being, that you do them a disservice if you paint it with that broad negative brush. Kids do better in middle school when their parents can actually convey with calm assurance that they think it's going to be great. Not in an inauthentic way, but... 
yeah, yeah not toxic positivity. Like, you're fine. Pick it up. Everything's great. Mm-hmm. But just giving them the space to explore it and to, we like to refer to it as bumpers, like a bowling lane. You're the bumper that they can bounce mm-hmm. off of to know that it's going to be okay. And what we find is a lot of it's ego or projection, like you were just referencing. It's like, maybe you had an experience that wasn't great in middle school, and now you're projecting that onto your kids or your ego is getting in the way to where you want to solve the problem for them or step in and help them from being hurt. But what you're doing is a short-term benefit where they need a long-term gain. So they need to understand how to positively communicate and have conflict and feel weird. And for us, I mean, I'm 35, Jill's 37. It's been 20 plus years since we've been in middle school, which we often remind parents that you felt like that too, and Mm -hmm. you survived. So allow your child the experience, allow them to really step into their own and pick up that self-seeking nature as you referenced as well. It's like they stop talking to you. They might seem like a stranger to you. It's not them being selfish, which we can so often lay the blame on. It's really them self-seeking. Who are they? What do they stand for? What do they like in friendships? All of the above, which you have, I think we have something in common in terms of this statistic that we constantly are telling parents, which is 1% of friendships remain from 7th to 12th grade. So along with not knowing who they are, they don't know who their friends are, which can be really difficult too, because friends are life Mm -hmm. at this point in time. So will you dive into a little bit around friendships as well? Sure. Yes. And I think it's really powerful to share the statistics, even though they terrify parents, because for parents, it confirms all of their worst feelings about middle school, but what it does for kids when you share statistics like the one you shared, and I'll share a few more, is that it normalizes that everybody is experiencing the same churn. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with them. It's just that this is the phase when you're doing that hard work of figuring out how to choose the right fit friends, how to walk away from friendships that aren't working for you without blowing up bridges, how to be kind to others, how to understand that if someone doesn't invite you to something, that doesn't mean that you have no chance of having social success in your future. Mm. It's always funny to me that a middle schooler cannot invite someone to their party and then be mortally wounded when that person doesn't invite them (laughs) to theirs. There's just that lack of big picture thinking. And so some of the other statistics along those lines, 12% of sixth graders have nobody named them as a friend. Uh, If you ask kids to name their best friend, and I hate the whole concept of best friend for a lot of reasons. We can talk about that if you want, but half of those people they name don't name them back. If you follow kids from the fall to the spring of the first year of middle school, only a third of those friendships are still stable. So you put it all together, plus that 1% stat that you shared, is it any wonder that kids, girls in particular, sense that other people like them, their confidence that they're liked drops 46% Mm. in middle school. And I don't think it has to be that way. That's why I wrote the second book, Middle School Superpowers. I think there's a lot we can do to preserve their confidence. Oh, perfect. Well, you teed me up to just dig in a little bit more there around, I mean, these statistics are, I mean, I'm also a parent. I'm a boy mom. My kids are in elementary school, so I am gearing up for the middle school years. And knowing these statistics do 
you know, lower and manage my own expectations. So for the kids who are challenged, if they're like really struggling coming to you around friendship drama, around not feeling included, around social media, because I know around middle school, that's when a lot of kiddos start to get phones. That's when kids are posting pictures and maybe you're not a part of the picture and you're feeling left out. What are some of the conversations that you have with kids around these type of conversations to support them in knowing that you're, you, what you're feeling is valid, but it's not the end of the world. How, what does it sound like? Or what does it sound like when, when you, when you counsel them? So one of the most frustrating things for parents is that you can't talk a kid out of wanting to be popular. Yeah. <laughs> so true. You can't convince them not to want to be friends with someone and one of the most excruciating things to see is when they are twisting themselves into a pretzel to make a friend who dropped them want them back. And you know mm-hmm. they're doing it the wrong way. You know they should pretend they're busy and do something else and move on. Right. And all they're doing is creating drama that will not further their cause. And we have to be super patient. And we can't tell them what to do because if we tell them what to do, they're only going to work harder to prove us wrong. So it's far more effective if you can exercise the restraint to ask a lot of questions that get them thinking about what they want, what they need, and what they can do. What's one small step they can take to feel a sense of agency? I tell this story in Middle School Superpowers of a girl who wasn't invited to house party. This was when they were learning virtually here in D.C. And she was so hurt that her closest friends all got together on house party without her. And it had happened the night before. There was nothing she could do. It was done. And it wasn't like she was going to see them the next day and be able to talk about it. And even if she did, I'm not sure she would have. So we had a conversation about what she could control, what she couldn't control, and what she wanted. And what we realized together, and these are the kinds of conversations parents can have where you're really brainstorming and helping them think more loosely, she realized she could either call one of the people in that friend group who had been on the house party call, who she trusted, and just share how she was feeling and hope that that would be therapeutic for her. Or she could arrange another house party call and invite the same people and see if maybe it was just an oversight. Or maybe she could call somebody else who she knew never got invited to house parties so that she could feel pretty good about herself, that she made somebody else feel better and help someone else not feel that way. We love that you gave three really solid options because something that we talk with our girls about a lot is the fact that you have friendship buckets. So if you call the wrong friend and talk to them about the house party, your venting is going to turn into, we like to say that event leads to another room. So Mm -hmm. they're going to tell somebody else and then somebody else is going to make you feel like you're this big again, probably make you feel worse about the situation. So analyzing what friend in the friendship group that she can talk to without it being vented into the other room is really solid for critical thinking skills and and just understanding what friends she can turn to. Um, I love thinking that 
maybe it was an oversight. So giving them the benefit of the doubt or Jill likes to say to her boys, when they go low, you go high. So how do you continue to present your best self in the face of adversity rather than wanting to undercut them as well? And then the third option is like, do you think you're the only one that's never gotten invited to something? So how do you think bigger and broader about the other people who may feel left out as well and strike up a relationship with them? So you're allowing them three really cool pathways in order to solve the problem, which is feeling hurt and left out, but you're giving them the tools to do something about it. So we're in and of itself helping overcome certain challenges, which as we all know, it's not going to be the first time that she gets left out. There's probably going to be an actual house party later on down the road that she does get invited to, right? So she gets to draw from experience, however long ago it was, of I overcame this once, I can do it again, which is so important, I think, for parents to listen to in not stepping in to solve the problem. I want to really hone in on that because so much of it is we want to help our kids not experience any hurt. And the episode we recorded, I think, just a couple weeks prior to you. And probably where we stumbled upon you was with Michelle Borba. And mm-hmm. she talks about this all the time in terms of helicopter parents and snowplow parents. And that just not suiting our kids or serving them in any sense of the word. So it's cool to hear how you get to break it down in your office for kids. Um, is it the same conversation outside of school? Because you have a family practice. Is that correct? Or do you have the same conversations with parents about how that looks supporting them in their role? Yes. And I think that parents can really share with their kids from their own lives in ways that avoid that toxic positivity, but also convey some empathy. So you might, as a parent, say, I had such a bad day at work and my boss did something that made me so angry. And all I want to do is call my coworker who I'm close with and vent. But I actually think that's going to get me all worked up again. I think I'm better off going for a walk or calling someone who I trust who has nothing to do with work and really helping them see the nuance that different coping strategies work in different scenarios, whether it's social or some other situation. Because I think that the instinct to get rid of that emotional discomfort always with middle schoolers is I must call someone and rehash this for the next four hours. And they don't even consider the possibility that all that will do is keep the story alive, keep their emotions high, which adds fuel to the fire for everybody else and keeps it interesting, as opposed to just doing whatever it is they need to do to bring themselves back down. I love that you said that because A former life of mine, I worked at (laughs) Lululemon, and one of my biggest just yucks when someone would come and give me feedback, they would never speak from a place of I. It was like, well, we, but I was just talking to that one person. So it felt like an invisible army was also behind this person, but it made it sound like they were all in it together. And I'm sure for that person, they just wanted to feel validated in their feelings. So they probably went and vented to somebody or a few people and got them on the, you know, like, yeah, I, I, yeah, totally. She, she acts like that in front of me too, or whatever it may be. But it was one of my biggest gripes and also one of my biggest lessons around 
if I ever want to communicate with somebody, I need to be very careful of not bringing in that invisible army because you do, you want to feel like you're right. You want to feel heard. You want to feel validated. And sometimes that can get you in a really sticky situation. So it's not only teaching I learned that I like to speak from a place of I, but teaching kids at a very young age exactly what you said, how to communicate it effectively. And you might handle it differently. You might not need to communicate it right away. You might just need to go for a walk. But calling your friend and fueling the fire even more is only going to get you burned. And that's not going to feel good for anybody. Because imagine that friend on the other end being like, whoa, you just spilt all of your toxic waste on me. And now I'm going to be sitting here as I'm trying to do my homework, thinking about what you just shared with me. So it's also being compassionate and considerate to the other friend around not spilling all of the waste that you're um, holding on to. And they're probably overwhelmed by things in their own life. So kids this age group have a really hard time setting healthy boundaries and knowing when it's appropriate to be a good friend and just listen and knowing when it's okay to say, you know what, that sounds like a lot. And I don't really want to talk about that other person anymore. I really need to go get some sleep or I need to whatever it is that they want to do other than sit there gossiping about this other person, it's really hard for kids to exercise that ability to say, you know, this isn't working for me. One of the common things I tell kids to say, which blows their mind is when somebody says to them, I have a really big secret I want to share with you. Some kids get a surge of anxiety because they are afraid they might forget. And usually when kids spill a secret, it's because they forget it was a secret. It's not that they're trying to betray Mm -hmm. someone. Yeah. And so I'll tell kids, you know, you can just say, if it's really private, you might not want to tell me because I'm horrible at keeping secrets. Never occurred to them that they could just say, you know, I don't really want to hold that for you. I'm just thinking of a girl that we recently had lunch with and she is the student that is, you know, she gets her work done and all the other kids look to her as like the smart kid in class. And there were two boys that sit on the other sides of her and they always ask to copy off of her homework. And she did it once, but now it's starting to become a pattern. And she came to us and she's like, I just feel so uncomfortable. Like that surge of anxiety that you were talking about is exactly how she felt. And we were like, okay, let's role play some scenarios so that you feel comfortable and confident in telling them no and setting that that boundary because what happens if you're not there one day and they're looking forward to you know cheating off your paper you can kind of you know support yourself in saying hey what happens if i'm not here you're going to have to fend for yourself so i love that you brought that up around that surge of anxiety because it's true kids just don't know how to set boundaries because they don't want to look bad in front of anybody well, well and it can be really fun to maybe want to hear the secret to be in on the latest gossip but mm-hmm. you're right that can really make things pretty heavy for you as as then the person carrying that baggage. So along those lines, mental health and well-being is obviously all over the place in terms of middle school alone. But in the year 2023, we've seen a huge surge of anxiety, depression, 
eating disorders. There's there's things all over the place based on the influx of social media, of course. Also, mismanaged expectations from parents, right? We think that our kids should know how to set boundaries or should know how to say no. There's there's a time where we don't hold their hand anymore crossing the street because it, it just becomes an expectation. So as far as what you've seen in school and in families in regards to mental health and well-being, what are some of the signs and symptoms that families can look for in in terms of a decline in one of their students, one of their kiddos' mental health? Um, Are there certain things that they can pinpoint and say, things aren't right, we need to pump the brakes, we need to maybe get some outside help or slow down and help out in home a little bit more? So there's two buckets. The first is the really obvious signs of mental distress. They're sleeping too much. They're sleeping too little. They suddenly have a massive change in appetite. They aren't doing any of the things they used to love. They are closed down completely in ways that are even unusual for them as a tween. And then there are more subtle signs that we don't necessarily recognize as being mental health related, things like rage and irritability. We often over freight the mood fluctuations of puberty when really big mood swings are a risk risk Mm. as well as something to be really looking at. So anything that seems out of the ordinary, I think it's really helpful to be talking to their coaches, to their teachers, to be getting to know their kids' friends, their kids' friends' parents, and having an understanding with those other members of the community that if anyone hears anything worrisome, like the kid is giving away their belongings, that you're going to talk about it. There's so much discomfort. I get so many calls as a school counselor from parents who don't want to or know how to address the issue with their kid's friend's parent or Mm. their a friend of a friend's parent, but we're all in the same community. We're all in it together. And if I then turn it around and say to them, would you rather have this conversation? If you were in their shoes, would you rather hear about it from the school counselor or would you rather hear about it from another parent? More often than not, they would far rather hear about it from another parent. And yet we feel so uncomfortable being direct with one another. So I think we need to have more open communication so that it is not this sense that you're either airing people's dirty laundry in the school setting. Not that I'm shocked, nothing shocks me. And I always appreciate knowing because it does leak into school the next day. But I think that can be in addition or as an epilogue after having that conversation with the other parent. I personally experienced this with my kid just this year around some drama in fourth grade. And of course, I got a phone call from the principal and then the mom that the other child that my son was in this debacle with, (laughs) debacle with, she called me for my kind of guidance around the situation versus asking the questions around was your son involved or, you know, my kid was, I think there was, there's like a level of embarrassment, shame and shame. Mm -hmm. And I just let her know that like, Hey, my son's a part of this conversation. I got a phone call from the principal. She goes, you did too. And so then it was like the walls came down. I want to be able to have honest conversations with parents And parents are judgy sometimes and you are afraid to come to them because it's like, well, you know, if your kid makes one mistake, it's going to be talked about on the playground or at school or, you know, so I think there was a level 
of just like, oh my gosh, I'm nervous to actually open up to her, but I'm so glad that she went first because now I can really communicate what happened. But I've seen it time and time again, and I'm not surprised that families come to you to say, what do I do? Because I'd rather you, can you go and and deliver the news versus me? And I'm sure you have to kind of coach them on the power of being honest with one another and allowing your child too to see that you can have communication and conflict that's healthy and that you're not going to fly off the handles and then talk about the situation at home because that's nasty too. Um, On the text thread, I think there's a lot of that talking negatively about the child and obviously your child hears it because it's behind closed doors. So I do love that you brought that up as well because we have an expectation. I've used that word several times now. We have an expectation around our kids being able to positively communicate Mm -hmm. and problem solve and critically think, but we forget that we are their direct example. Yeah. So instead of lecturing them on how to do it, we have to model how to do it, which means having uncomfortable conversations and not sweeping it under the rug. Because I also see that happen. I was like, well, No big deal. No big deal. It's the next day. But one thing we like to say to our girls all the time is the more tough or hard conversations that you have, the better you will be at having those conversations. So I love that you brought that up because we forget that as adults, quote unquote, that we do that to ourselves as well. And girls, I talk about this in the super daring chapter, but girls are far more likely than boys to shy away from any kind of conflict-filled conversation that holds the potential for damaging the relationships, which are so important to them. They're not going to run for student council if they know a friend wants that position. And the list goes on. So they really are afraid of conflict. And so are their mothers. And I include myself in that. I'm conflict diverse too. We are socialized that way. And so we have to really take pains to model that and recognize that it's hard for us as well. And I think there's nothing wrong with saying to your kid, I am going to make this difficult call, even though I don't want to, even though I'm afraid she'll judge me, because Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we have this conversation one-on-one so it doesn't become bigger than it needs to be. So we can nip it early before it becomes even more problematic. And when you do have those conversations, the other parents tend to be relieved because you're essentially saying, yes, my kid is imperfect, your kid is imperfect, so let's let go of this fear-based parenting culture and just embrace the imperfection and work together to try to raise good people. Uh, Let's raise good people. Let's raise good people. That's all we want. (laughs) And it's funny because I've had several conversations with parents. I'm not a parent, so I feel like I get a funny view of things. Jill being a parent working with so many girls, I get a totally different perspective on it. And having that simple conversation, it's almost like the light bulbs you have with your students around, hey, you can say you don't want to carry that secret. I've said to so many moms, hey, have you ever let your girls know that you have friendship drama as well? Or you're scared to meet a new friend because you think you might be judged? And the look on their faces is like, what? No, I've never thought of doing that. 
because X, Y, Z. And it's like, you have to humanize it. You have to let them in. And that is such a connector for you to your daughter, for you to your son, whatever the situation is. So they know that you're a human just like them. So they know that you struggle at your age, just like they're struggling at their age. It bridges so many gaps in terms of relationships. And I'm, I'm always shocked that such a simple recommendation is never thought of. It's like, yeah, open up again, model, don't lecture, tell them that you're feeling some type of way. And what you're going to go take five deep breaths because you're nervous. What you're doing is showing them how to do it and giving them tools to do it in the same breath. So I love that going beyond middle school. So we've got sixth, seventh and eighth for most of the country. I know that there's different breakdowns in different schools. We were a sixth, seventh, eighth middle school people. But what happens beyond middle school? So going on, going into high school, what do you see in, I mean, probably seventh grade as well as eighth, but what do you see in terms of the anxiety levels for that transition period? So there's two kinds of kids. And I see this mostly in my private practice because until it's been a while since I worked in a high school, I'm back in one now, but in my private practice, I see a lot of kids struggling with the transition to ninth. Ninth grade is a really hard year. Some of them are really excited to get out of middle school. They have this sense that it's a new start. Maybe it's a chance to reinvent themselves. Maybe there's an influx of new students, an opportunity to do more activities. A lot of middle schools have very few sports or opportunities to get involved unless you're the absolute star athlete. And so high school expands their horizons quite a bit. And they don't necessarily anticipate how hard it's going to be, but it can be a huge ramp up in academic difficulty. It can feel like you're on more, you don't have quite as much support. You know, a sixth grade teacher might give them a lot of guidance about how to keep their calendar or make sure everyone's written down the assignment before they walk out of the room. And suddenly in ninth grade, you're surrounded by big kids again. You're no longer the eighth grader who's the biggest person in the building. And that's intimidating. You have adults who just expect you to know what you're doing. And sometimes they can feel a little melancholy, like they were forced to grow up too fast. And today's 15 year olds are very much like five years ago, what we saw with middle schoolers because of the pandemic. Wow. I couldn't agree more. And I also think layered on top of everything that you just shared, social media, social media, I mean, Mary and I went through like the awkward phase, you know, like we bowl haircut, <laughs> the braces, <I> mean. <laughs> the, the really plucked, yes. Yes. the <laughs> eyebrows that were overly plucked. And now, I mean, you have beauty standards that are being thrown at you, like, you know, makeup tutorials and the hottest trends and, and here's the latest outfits. And I, I mean, these kids who are in ninth grade look like they're 18 or even older, it, it's it's overwhelming. So not only are they walking into a whole new world, like you said, expanding their horizons, I also think there's a level of pressure to look a certain to way. look a certain way, to act a certain way, to have other people look at them not as the young kids, but as the mature ninth graders. <laughs> so is social media, I'm sure even in middle schools, I, I would just love to hear kind of how it is pressuresome and how it goes against kiddos' mental health and well-being. I'm sure it's staggering with what you see on a day-to-day basis with kiddos. So I think two of the other problems with social media, one is that all of your likes and followers are on display. So it 
is this hard metric of your popularity. We, of course, as adults know that these are not meaningful friendships. These are people who pressed post or pressed like, and it has very little bearing on whether or not you're going to be lonely. And yet for these kids who don't have a lot of experience, they see the kids who have 2000 followers or more or whatever, and they look at their 200 followers or whatever they might have and feel inadequate. They feel like no matter how many close friends they have in real life, it is not enough. They are subjected not only to what their friends are doing without them, but everybody's photoshopping their pictures. So it's not only a highlight reel, the highlights are not even real. So (laughs) it's really, really hard to maintain perspective when that when you're just pummeled with all of those images and it's equally true for boys the research shows that the more time that boys spend online looking at images of other people the more they feel inadequate to the more they feel subjected to whatever the standard is for men and being you know quote unquote real man so it's not like anyone is spared and the only thing we can do since it's not going anywhere is have really transparent, open, problem-solving conversations with kids. I'll suggest that they log how they feel before and after they get off an app so they can start to get a sense of which ones are hurting their self-esteem. I'll have conversations about how if you're low confidence, you're not going to be willing to take as many risks. And if you don't take risks, you're less likely to reach your goals. So we want kids to be thinking about how it might be getting in the way of their goals. It could be a social risk that they don't take because of something they've seen online. And every kid is going to be different. So my own, I have a 15-year-old who really can't stand Snapchat for lots of reasons, doesn't find Instagram problematic, and and really likes funny animal videos on YouTube and TikTok. (laughs) There are ways that that particular kid can use it that don't take them down or make them feel bad in ways that they can make it harder for themselves. Yeah. God, it's, it's such an interesting landscape. And then you throw in, cause we're, I'd say 2012 was really when you can start seeing the statistics align with the amount of time spent on social media and all of these problems that started to arise because of that. So I think we're at a point in time now where it's like we're having more conversations around the harm and when do we get our kids a cell phone? Because for a long time it felt like, oh, you turn nine and it's Christmas. Here's your cell phone, right? Like it was just given with with no bearings, with no boundaries, with no conversations about the things that your kids could potentially see or do or feel after after using. And it's like now we've got the sector of kids whose parents are withholding. So they feel like they're left out in a, in a way that they're missing out on what's going on and they're not a part of the conversation and they find ways to use their friends' social media or they have one without their parents' knowledge. So it is, it's, it's such a sticky point. And just to all of your points, it's like, have, again, have the difficult conversations. You have to figure out what works for your family and you have to be open and honest about it throughout 
or you're going to be experiencing these problems under a microscope. They're going to be much bigger than they needed to be because you avoided having them. Because if what we know is if you don't have them, the world is going to have them for you. And that's going to paint the landscape, the picture for your kids in terms of what they think, what they value, how they feel. And that's not going to be good for cohesiveness or friendship or the family dynamic in any sort of a way. So you, okay, you've written two books. You're also a contributor. Is it the Washington Post where you write your career confidential? That's actually for educators. That's for for a magazine called The Cap-In. I write about parenting, counseling, and education for The Post. Oh, very cool. Um, We'll have all of that in our show notes. Obviously, we just stumbled upon you a few weeks ago. I think we sent the email right away. We actually sent two emails because we were so excited. excited. Um, I even noticed that it was a second invitation. I just said yes again, I think. I guess we'll have you back. We'll have to have you back. But we're excited to have you as a resource. We're excited to have both of your books as well as your columns as resources for not only us, but to be able to direct our families to as well. So in that, thank you for going first. Thank you for seeing a gap in the marketplace that could not only help you, but help the families that you are working with in the work you're doing. Because what we know, what we all know is that these social emotional skills, these tools, don't just help your kid right now in the terrible, horrible, awful times. <laughs> no what good, very bad day. Seeing in middle school, <laughs> they really help them throughout their life. When you can establish these tools and skills at an early age, they start to form the identity of who your kid is going to be and how they're going to handle conflict or pitfalls in their life. And they're going to be able to overcome those things quicker, faster, with more grace, with more elegance, with with everything in order to be a positive contributing member of society. And I think that's all we want. We want to raise happy, healthy, positive kids who understand how to navigate life in in a way that serves them and their community. So thank you for going first. And thank you for having this conversation with us today. Thank you for what you do. Yeah. The whole village. It really does. And I think that's in this day and age with everything that is coming onto the scene. Now AI is making its way into the world of, you know, technology. We really do. There needs to be more people that can raise these kiddos together. And I mean, we are better together. So I couldn't agree with you more. And Phyllis, we are just honored to have you on our show. And um, thank you again. We really look forward to building this relationship on our podcast off our podcast as well. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all. We will see you on the next episode of What's the Lesson. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to What's the Lesson. If you're feeling the same I can do anything attitude that we are, here's how you can keep the momentum going. Spread the good vibes. Share this episode with your friends, family, or give us a shout out on your social media. Fancy a trip to iTunes Town? We're all ears for your ratings and reviews. Seriously, we read each one of them. Your thoughts are like gold to us. Lastly, let's be friends. Hang out with us on social media for more awesome content and behind the scenes action. And until we meet again, remember our golden rule. Turning those WTF moments into WTL moments is a superpower. Practice is always progress, and you've got this.